Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh Welcome back to another episode of Jum'ah Nights I hope you've enjoyed our series so far with regards to the maqamat of the Imams Today we're going to be discussing the infamous, infamous question Where is Imama in the Quran? And we're going to be here a while so I want to get straight into it So before we get into answering this question the first thing we need to understand is why is this question asked? This is a question that gets asked of the Shia again and again by those who oppose the religion of Ahlul Bayt It's something that they believe stumps our religion. They believe that it stumps Shiism and that the Shia do not have an answer to this question. They ask this question with a number of presumptions and these are the presumptions I want to address before we get into answering the actual question of where is Imama in the Quran? The first presumption that they ask this question with is that all usul al-deen have to be mentioned in the Quran. The second presumption they have is that all of their, i.e. Ahl sunnah their usul al-deen are all mentioned in the Quran in muhkam verses. The third presumption is, therefore, as an asl of the religion, imama also needs to be mentioned as a muhkam verse in the Quran. And the fourth one is therefore imama is incorrect because by their understanding, it is not found in the Quran in any muhkam verses. So these are the presumptions we want to discuss before we get into anything else. The first of them was what? That all foundational usul al-deen need to be found in the Qur'an. The reason I'm taking this approach with regards to discussing this is not because I don't want to answer the question about where is Imam in the Qur'an, we're going to get to that. But first of all, we need to understand the principles and the foundations of this question and why it's being asked before we can move forward. So the first presumption we want to discuss is that all foundational usul al-deen must be found in the Qur'an. So the first question we need to ask is, what are usul al-deen? It's made up of two words, usul and ad-deen. Usul comes from the word asl in Arabic, is the plural of the word asl in Arabic, which means roots or foundation, that which is built upon. And as for deen in this case, it comes with the meaning of recompense. We see this mentioned in the first surah of the Quran, in Surah Al-Fatiha, in verse number four after the Basmala, Allah says, Maliki Yawmiddin, the owner of the day of recompense, the day where that which you have done will be repaid to you, whether good or whether bad. So that is the meaning of recompense. So Usul al-Deen, together are those foundations upon which if you were not to believe them you would be accountable for them and liable for them on the day of judgment those beliefs are those things that are built upon and are essential to your islam on the day of judgment it is also that that if it's not believed in it can take you outside of the fold of al-islam so these are what usul al-deen are so the question then comes do all usul al-deen need to be mentioned in the quran as for myself, as a Shia of Ahlul Bayt we believe definitely that all Usul al-Deen are mentioned in the Qur'an because the Qur'an that is Mufassar by Ahlul Bayt the Qur'an that is explained by Ahlul Bayt is our ultimate reference for truth. It cannot be that the Usul al-Deen are not mentioned in the Qur'an. But this is a question that I want to put to the opposing sect. They are the ones asking us to bring that from the Quran, as if they believe that Usul al-Din all have to be mentioned in the Quran. Let's see what their scholars have to say about this. Let's look at the book Sharh al-Sunnah by Al-Barbahari. This is a book that we referred to in our episode with regards to Salafi Tawheed versus Shi'i Tawheed. And Al-Barbahari is a classical scholar. He died in the year 329 after Hijrah and he's considered from the earliest, earliest scholars. And many people 
if you look at the more extreme Salafis that we have, for example, in this country, if you look at S-Pubs or even Shamsi in Speaker's Corner, this is a book that they hold in very high regard. Look what Al-Barbahari says. Barbahari says, on page 227 of volume 2, I've got Sharh Sunnah, I've got the commentary of Salih Al-Fawzan. Al-Barbahari says, وَإِذَا سَمِعْتَ الرَّجُلَ تَأْتِهِ بِالْأَثَرِ فَلَا يُرِيدُهُ وَيُرِيدُ الْقُرْآنِ فَلَا تَشُكَّ أَنَّهُ رَجُلٌ قَدْ اِحْتَوَى عَلَى الزَّنْدَقَةِ فَقُمْ مِنْ عِنْدِهِ وَدَعْهُ Al-Barbahari says, if you hear a man to whom a hadith is brought, an athar is brought, a report is brought from Rasulullah or from those who have authority, and he doesn't want that hadith, but he wants you to quote Quran in its place, he says, do not doubt that that is a man that has been overcome with heresy, with disbelief. So get up and leave him. Al-Barbahari is telling me, if, if I bring you a hadith of Rasulullah and I tell you, look, Rasulullah said, I've left behind for you two weighty things, the Quran and the Ahlul Bayt. And you say to me, no, I don't want a hadith of Rasulullah. I want you to bring it from the Quran. Al-Barbahari is saying, you're a disbeliever for saying that. You're a heretic for saying that. So next time, I'm going to keep that in mind. Anytime I get asked that question, I'm going to follow the advice of Al-Barbahari and I'm just going to leave that person be because he is a heretic as per the advice of Al-Barbahari. And nobody should be offended at that. If Al-Barbahari is giving the advice that get up and leave this man because he is a person who is overcome with zandaqa, he is a heretic, he's a disbeliever, then you shouldn't feel offended at all. It's not me saying it, it's Al-Imam. Al-Alim, Al-Faqih, Asad Al-Sunnah, Al-Barbahari That's who's saying it, it's not me So you should not be offended at all When you ask us to bring Quran in place of Hadith So that's one example of a scholar From the Ahlul Sunnah, from those who they revere Who is telling you that the Hadith hold the same weight as the Quran Don't ever come to someone and ask them solely for Quran That goes against your own principles that's one example, and there's many examples, but we just want to take one classical example and one contemporary one. So the next example that I'm going to take is Sheikh Al-Albani. Al-Albani is revered very much so by the Salafi movement in the UK, all around the world. He's very revered. Imagine Al-Albani wrote a whole book. Guess what the name of that book was? He called the book Al-Hadith Hujjatun Binafsih. He called the book, literally the book was written to prove that hadith by themselves are an authority. So it doesn't need to be accompanied by the Quran. This is not what I believe by the way. Like I said, we believe as Shia that all of our beliefs have to be in the Quran because that is our ultimate reference. And not only that, but the Quran that is explained by the Ahlul Bayt salam. So what does Albani say? Albani says in this book, he says, وَبِلْ jumla." فَأَدِلَّةِ الْكِتَابِ وَالسُنَّةِ وَعَمِلِ الصَّحَابَةِ وَأَخْوَالِ الْأُلَمَاءِ تَدُلُّ دِلَالَةً قَاطِعًا He says that as for the proofs of the kitab and the sunnah and the actions of the companions and the sayings of the ulama then these are proof that are proof that are qati' they are certain proofs عَلَى مَا شَرَحْنَا that which we have explained مِنْ وُجُوبِ الْأَخْفِ بِحَدِيثِ الْأَحَادِ فِي كُلِّ أَبْوَابِ الشَّرِيعَةِ and this is what we have said of the obligation of taking hadith that are narrated in a singular chain in all of the doors of sharia, in all of the sections and chapters of the sharia. Sawa'an kana fil i'taqadat awl amaliyat. He says, even if it is an i'taqad, even if it is an usul al-deen, that's your aqaid. 
So he's saying even if it's in aqaid and you have one hadith and it's a single chain, then you should take it. It's the authority for you. He says, and to say that, for example, the Quran acts as an authority and the hadith don't is a bid'ah. If you, if you separate them at all, if you say that the Quran and the hadith have different levels of authority, he's saying this is an innovation that the Salaf did not know. So uh, one, you have Al-Barbahari, he's calling you a zindiq. And you've got Al-Albani calling you what? He's calling you an innovator. He's saying this is bid'ah that the Salaf did not know. So when you separate like this and you come to the Shia, you come to the Shia in speaker's corner, you call into the Shia live shows and you say, bring us an ayah from the Quran proving imamah. This is against the, the, the advice and the statements of your scholars themselves. And they're saying that this is a bid'ah. You should never ask that question to anybody. And as you will hear very often, there's a hadith of the Prophet, very famous. He's saying that this bid'ah, this is bid'ah. Al-Albani is calling it a bid'ah. He's telling you that this is going to lead you to the hellfire. That's the level of seriousness that he's discussing this with. I can't believe, like, what is, is this a kind, some kind of joke? Your ulama spend their entire lives fighting with the Asha'ira, arguing with the Asha'ira, telling them that, look, ahadith al-ahad are authoritative. One singular chain narration is authoritative. In, in aqaid, in usul, they've literally spent their entire lives fighting that. And you show up at speaker's corner and you want to ask the Shia, where's your proof in the Quran? That's the same question that Asha'ira have been asking you for centuries. Where is this belief that you have about this specific sifa in the Quran? They've been asking you the same question and you have the audacity to come to Shia and ask us this when your scholars have spent their lives explaining to the Asha'ira that the hadith are an authority. Is this some kind of joke? This is a clear example and application of the famous English proverb, don't throw stones if you live in a glass house. So what have we seen? We've seen that their scholars themselves are saying that Usul al-Din and the details of the Usul al-Din don't need to be in the Quran. You can have a hadith and it is authoritative in and of itself. It cannot be differentiated in its authoritativeness from the Quran. So you've got Al-Albani saying that, you've got Al-Barbahari saying that. That's a classical scholar and a contemporary one. And there's many in between, but we haven't got time to read too many statements today. The second presumption is what? Is that all Sunni Usul al-Din are mentioned in the Quran. Let's examine that claim or that presumption that they make when they ask the Shia this question. Let's take a classical example again of a book and a scholar of the Salafis that they revere very highly again. We're not going to be quoting from just any people. We're going to be quoting from all of those people who they revere and they consider to be great scholars. So I'm referring now to a book by Al-Lalaka'i. Al-Lalaka'i was one of the classical scholars of the Ahlul Sunnah and he wrote a book called Sharh Atiqadat Ahlul Sunnah. So this is one of the books that they actually refer to in order to understand the opinions of the Salaf with regards to Aqaid. And it's a very, very well popular used book. What does Al-Lalqa'i say? It's mentioned on page 176. Al-Lalqa'i narrates from Abu Muhammad Abdurrahman ibn Abi Hatim, who said, سألت أبي وأبا زرعة عن مذاهب أهل السنة في أصول الدين. So he's asking his father and Abu Zur'ah 
Abu Zura al-Razi, who's also one of the grand scholars of the classical scholars of the Ahl-Sunnah. He says, I asked him with regards to what? Fi usul al-Din, wa ma adraka, and that which they saw from the ulama in their travels in all of the cities, and what they believe, those two, what do they believe? His father and Abu Zura. فَقَالَ أَدْرَكْنَا الْأُلَمَاءِ فِي جَمِيعِ الْأَمْسَارِ هِجَازًا وَإِرَاقًا وَشَامًا وَيَمَنًا فَكَانَ مِنْ مَذْهَبِهِمْ He says that we saw these things, these specific points, we saw them from all of the ulama in Hijaz, in what is known as today as Saudi Arabia, in Iraq, in Sham, in the Levant, in, in, in Syria and Palestine and Jordan and Lebanon and all of those uh, countries today. They were referred to as Sham and Yemen. He said, so we saw all of these scholars. Yeah, so this is not just Abu Zura and his father speaking. This is the scholars of the Ahlul Sunnah, the classical scholars from all of the different regions. They went to them and they said that this was from their madhab. This was what they believed in their aqaid, in their usul al-din. Because that's what he's asking about. He says, fi usul al-din. He asked with regards to the usul al-din. So they respond. They say, al-iman qawlun wa amalun yazidu wa yanqus. They say that all of us believe that Iman is speech and action and that it fluctuates. It goes up and down. It increases and it decreases. This is one of the beliefs. Quran, Kalamullah, Ghair Makhluq, Jahati. He says that the Quran is the word of Allah and it is not created. This is another bit of discussion and argumentation that they had with the Mu'tazila. And that qadr, the destiny that Allah has written, that which is good and bad from it, is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is the argumentation that they have with the qadariya. And then he says, look, this is another thing in the usul al-deen, and this is the point that I wanted to come to. This is another thing in the usul al-deen that all of those scholars among all of those places agreed upon. What did they agree upon? وَخَيْرُ هَذِهِ الْأُمَّةِ بَعْدَ نَبِيِّهَا عَلَيْهِ الصَّلَاةُ وَالسَّلَامُ أَبُو بَكْرِ السِّدِّيقِ ثُمَّ أُمَرِ بْنِ الْخَطَّابِ ثُمَّ أُثْمَانِ بْنِ عَفَانِ ثُمَّ عَلِيِّ بْنِ أَبِي طَالِبِ عَلَيْهِمُ السَّلَامُ وَهُمُ الْخُلَفَاءُ الرَّاشِدُونَ الْمَحْدِيُونَ So what's he saying? He's saying that all of the scholars of the Ahl sunnah in the classical period in all of these cities believed that it was from the Usul al-Din that the greatest after the Prophet were Abu Bakr, number one, then Umar, then Uthman ibn Affan, then Ali ibn Abi Talib salam. So if these are from the Usul al-Din, then I'd like to ask a follow-up question when someone asks me, where is Imam in the Quran because you guys believe it's Usul al-Din, I will turn around to that person and I will say, your Usul al-Din say that Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Imam Ali are the greatest after the Prophet in that order. I will say, Bismillah, show me from the Quran this belief that you hold in your Usul al-Din. These are the Usul al-Din that all of the scholars at that time in all of these countries, in Hejaz, in Iraq, in Sham, and in Yemen, they all believe this to be from Usul al-Din. That this is from the roots of religion, this is from the principles of religion. And many of the scholars in the classical period also, they used to do takfir on this basis. They used to say, if you don't accept the khilaf of Abu Bakr and Umar, you're a kafir aslan. So this is something they used to believe as an asl of their religion. This is usul al-deen for them. So the same way you ask me, where is Imam in the Quran? First of all, I will ask you, show me where does it say in the Quran that Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman are the greatest after the Prophet? Very fair question for me to ask in return. And if you ever want to argue with the fact that Khilafah of Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali ibn Abi Talib is an usul al-deen in your books, then argue with 
Al-Lalkai, argue with Abu Zor Al-Razi, argue with all of these scholars that apparently they had ajma' on it. This is what he's, he's claiming. He's saying that this is from their aqaid. This is what all of them believed. So argue with them. Don't argue with me. This is what's written in Sharh Atiqad Ahl Sunnah. It's not a Shia book. I'm reading to you what Al-Lalkai said, a classical scholar who you refer to to get opinions with regards to the Salaf. So here are the opinions of the Salaf that I have presented to you. And then what do we see? Like I said, there are those who have done takfir on this basis. And there's many other statements that I can read to show you that uh, the Khilaf of Abu Bakr and Umar is considered to be from the Usul al-Din. And another person who mentioned this is Ibn Taymiyyah, who needs no introduction. In his Aqidah al-Wasatiyah, he mentioned that this is from the Usul, that you believe that Abu Bakr and Umar are the Khulafa after Rasulullah. So again, I'll ask them, show me in the Quran. Then you have here Al-Qurtubi in his Tafsir. He writes in his tafsir in volume number 8, page number 94. What does he say? Al-Qurtubi says, Qultu wa qad jaa fi sunnah ahadith sahiha yudillu zahiruha ala annahu al-khalifa ba'da. He says that many ahadith have come in the sunnah and the apparent meanings in these narrations prove that Abu Bakr is the khalifa after Rasulullah. وَقَدْ إِنْ أَقَدَ الْإِجْمَاءَ عَلَى ذَلِكَ وَلَمْ يَبْقَى مِنْهُمْ مُخَالِفٍ He says that ijma' occurred upon this. That Abu Bakr was the khalifa after Rasulullah. And nobody differed upon this. And that is not true. But this is what he's saying. He's saying that nobody differed upon this. وَالْقَادِهُ فِي خِلَافَتِهِ مَخْتُوءٌ بِخَطَئِهِ وَتَفْسِيقِهِ and he says that the one who speaks against his Khilafah, i.e. the Shia, then it is certain that they are upon mistake and that they are upon fisk. They are immoral people. And then he asks the question, Should he be called a disbeliever, the one who goes against the Khilafah of Abu Bakr? He says, It's been disagreed upon. It's something that is a matter of difference of opinion. And the more correct opinion according to Al-Qurtubi is to call him a disbeliever for not agreeing with the Khilaf of Abu Bakr. So what is this if it is not Usul al-Din? And as Al-Qurtubi is somebody who's written a whole tafsir, I would ask him, show me in the Quran where does it say that the Khilafah of Abu Bakr and Umar is from the Usul al-Din? Where does it say that we have to believe that in order to be Muslims? I would ask him that same question. And all of the other scholars who used to do takfir on this basis, do they have evidence from the Qur'an to say that this is a part of the religion in a clear muhkam ayah? I want to see the name of Abu Bakr. That's how they say to us. They want, want to see the name of Ali in the Qur'an. Where is the name of Ali? You'll show them ayat about Imama. You'll show them uh, ayat about Ta'a. They'll be like, no, I want to see the name of Ali ibn Abi Talib in the Qur'an. I want to see the name of Abu Bakr and Umar in the Qur'an in that case. Since you believe that these are from your usul al-deen. So this individual, he's calling these people disbelievers based on something that he himself is saying is found in the Sunnah, not in the Quran. Deen Abu Taban. Of course, he can take anybody out of the religion as he wants. And that's how these individuals, they've been acting towards us. They come to us and they say to us, look, Imama is not in the Quran. It's not in a muhkam verse. We can't see the name of Ali in the Quran. And they go and they call Shia disbelievers based on something that they have in their usul al-deen that they can't prove from the Quran either in a muhkam verse with the name and clarity and everything that they're asking us for. So these are double standards, clear double standards when we see them asking us these questions and they don't have the answers to, the, to them themselves for their own beliefs. And since we're on the topic of a muhkam verse, a clear verse, the topic of clarity, what is a muhkam verse? Do scholars agree what a muhkam verse is? 
That's another question. These individuals, they come to you and they say, we want a clear verse about Imama. Do you agree, first of all, amongst your scholars, what is a clear verse? What is a muhkam verse? And what is a mutashabih verse? The answer is they don't agree. If you look at Jami'ul Bayan by At-Tabari, and this is one of the greatest mufassirin of Ahlul Sunnah, many of the scholars of Ahlul Sunnah have said that he wrote the greatest tafsir. Tafsir al-Tabari is considered by some the greatest tafsir ever written in Ahlul Sunnah. So what does he say? He speaks about this very idea of muhkam al-mutashabih. Yeah, when he's discussing the ayats of Surah Al-Imran, the seventh verse of Surah Al-Imran, where it mentions the idea of muhkam al-mutashabih. How many opinions do you think al-Tabari mentions for what is muhkam and what is mutashabih? Two? Three? Did you guess more? Did you guess five? Did you guess 10? There's more than 10 opinions that Tabari quotes on what is muhkam and what does muhkam mean and what does mutashabih mean. So before you come and you ask us for a clear verse, a muhkam verse, first you guys need to agree what is a muhkam verse. That is the first question I will ask you. What do you mean? How do you qualify a muhkam verse? And the same way, if you come to me with a specific definition, I can say to you, I disagree with your definition and I'll take another opinion that your scholars hold with regards to what muhkam and mutashabih means and I will show you a muhkam verse based on that definition about imama. We see a very interesting opinion quoted by At-Tabari with regards to what is a muhkam verse and what is a mutashabih verse. He says, And others said, you see this is him quoting all of the different opinions of the scholars. This is one definition that he quotes. He says, He says that the muhkam from the Quran is that which the ulama understand its tafsir, its ta'wil, and they understood its meaning and its exegesis. And the mutashabih is that which nobody has the ability to understand, that which Allah kept in his knowledge specific to himself and nobody else can understand from the Quran. An example that he gives of this is the huruf al-muqatta'at, like for example, alif lam mim, nobody knows the meaning of that, ha mim, nobody knows the meaning of that, kaf ha ya in sad. Nobody knows the complete meanings of these huruf al-muqatta'at. And these are the kinds of verses that these scholars would say are mutashabih and the rest of the Quran they would consider to be muhkam because they feel that they understand the interpretation of it. So this is a, a definition of muhkam and mutashabih that was accepted amongst certain scholars, a certain significant group of scholars, and it's a subjective opinion. Somebody might think they understand the interpretation of a specific verse. Another scholar may say, no, I don't understand. This is mutashabih. So this is a subjective opinion on what is muhkam and what is mutashabih. So I could sit here and I could say to you, well, I think it's muhkam. And you could say to me, no, I think it's mutashabih. So then it's, it's a subjective thing. So how can you come and ask me about a clear verse, a muhkam verse about imama? First of all, your scholars don't agree on the meaning of what these things mean. You can't agree with me what those things mean. And I can quote to you a scholar from your own school who disagrees with you and I can follow his definition. And thirdly, that opinion in itself is subjective. So I can say I feel something is muhkam and you can say you don't feel that it's muhkam. So where do we go from here? What kind of question is that? If we look at all of these fundamental presumptions that they make when they ask this question, all of them are presumptions that stand on such weak foundations. These presumptions themselves are wrong. 
So what kind of question is that when they ask us to prove Imamah from the Quran? But as I said, as Shia of Ahlul Bayt we believe that all of the Usul al-Din are mentioned in the Quran that is Mufassar by the Ahlul Bayt the Quran that has been explained by the Ahlul Bayt And that is what we are going to do next. We are going to discuss the ayat of the Quran that mention Imamah as a concept very clearly in Muhkam ayat and we're going to go through this step by step. And just so you know, I'm speaking to the Shia here because you need to have some level of light in your heart in order to be able to accept these verses. If you want to be blind completely to these verses and you don't want to accept them, then nobody will accept them. We've seen it happen for years and years. There's no point in me coming here and pretending that I'm going to convince everybody. There are some people who are completely blind to this and they don't want to hear it. And no matter what I bring today, they don't want to hear it. So there's no point in those people. I'm speaking to those people who are Shia of Ahl Bayt and want to know about the ayat of the Quran with regards to Imama. And I'm speaking to those who have come here listening with an open mind and want to hear the ayat from a Shia perspective uninterrupted by anybody in explaining with regards to the ayat about Imama in the Quran. So we're going to discuss this in stages. Imama in the Quran is something that has been discussed from so many different angles and today I just want to take a few angles. The first angle is the idea of there being a constant representative of Allah upon earth and this is something we find at the beginning of the Quran, Surah Al-Baqarah in verse number 30 after the Basmala, Allah says He says and when your Lord said to the angels indeed I will place on the earth a representative. So this is Allah himself putting that thing into place, placing a representative of his on earth at the beginning of creation. This is something that he has set up for it to be throughout all of existence. This is how he has set it up. The system through which he is creating this earth is that this representative will always be present. The angels respond, They ask, Will you place in it those who will cause corruption in the earth and they will spill blood while we are here to say your praises and we are here to gratify you? And Allah responds by saying, Qala inni ma la He says, I know that which you do not know. If we take a look at that question from the angels, the angels are not asking the question with regards to the Khalifa. The Khalifa of Allah, the representative of Allah is not going to be the one that is causing discord or spilling blood on the earth. It is as if they can see very far into the creation. They can see that one day the representative of Allah would stand alone in Karbala and his blood would be spilled. This is the question that the angels are asking. They're saying that you want to place a representative on the earth forever and you know that they will be treated in this way, that their blood will be spilled. The highest application of this verse in the blood that is spilled is only the purest of blood and that is the blood of none other than Aba Abdullah al-Hussain We see this very early in the Quran, in the creation itself where Allah decides that I am going to have a representative on the earth. That's the first verse with regards to a constant representative on the earth. Then we have a generic ayah with regards to the position of Imama. Just the word and the position of Imama with regards to Ibrahim. Now we don't argue that the imama that Ibrahim had is the same imama that Imam Ali والسلام, had. It is of course a lower version of imama than Imam Ali. والسلام. 
But this is at his level, bihasabihi. The amount of imama that Ibrahim was given by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What does Allah say? He says in Surah Al-Baqarah, in verse 124, Allah says, Wa he says, when Ibrahim was tested with some words and he completed them, Allah said, I will make you for the people an imam. Ibrahim asked, and what of my offspring? Allah says, Allah says, my covenant does not reach those who are oppressive in their nature. This verse shows you that imama is a station, a position. This is a station and a position that is mentioned in the Quran. Ibrahim at this point was already a prophet, was already a rasul, was already a khalil, khalilullah. He was somebody who had a great, great rank already in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But after this test and after passing this test, Allah says, Allah says, I will now make you an imam for the people. I have made you now an imam for the people. Do you see how is the same words used there? This is another proof that imama is something that is divinely appointed. It's not something where a few tribes sit together and they make a decision amongst themselves. This is a position that Allah chooses. And this is what we see in the Quran. Allah is saying that I am the one who has made you an imam for the people. And we see an indication here with regards to the idea where Allah says, That my covenant does not encompass those who are oppressive to themselves. We see this understanding of zulm that we say this, it's not about oppressing in general. This is oppression of the soul. When we say, nafsi, I have oppressed my soul by sinning, right? This is the oppression that is being spoken about here. So he's saying that my covenant does not encompass those who are sinners, i.e. this position of imama, this covenant of imama will only be given to those who are sinless. And this is an indication of the infallibility of the imams. But that's not what we are focusing on today. This is two verses where we see, first of all, a constant representative of Allah upon earth. And number two, the position of imama mentioned explicitly in the Quran as a station, as a rank that is given divinely by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Of course, there is much to say about these ayats. And each of those ayats can genuinely have a whole book written about them. But we don't have time. We are trying to get through as many ayats as possible to build on this idea of imama in the Quran. We see in another ayah of Surah An-Nisa, in verse number 59, after the Basmala, what does Allah say? Allah says, Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, O you who believe, Ati'u allaha wa ati'u al-rasoola wa ul al-amri minkum fa in tanazatum fi shay'in furudduhu ilallahi wa al-rasooli in kuntum tu'minuna billahi wa liyawm al-akhiri thalika khayrun wa ahsanu ta'wila. Allah says, O you who believe, obey Allah and obey the Messenger and those in authority among you. So if you are to defer in anything, any matter, then return it to Allah and towards the Messenger. If you are to believe in Allah and the last day, that is better for you and a greater action, and a better understanding of what you should do. So let's dissect this ayah, because this is an ayah that the Shia bring up constantly 
And unfortunately, there seems to be some level of misunderstanding with regards to this ayah. The first thing is, what do they say? They say, look, it says, Allah wa Rasul, but it doesn't say, wa amri minkum. So they say that, look, it says, obey Allah, and they say, it says, obey the messenger, but it doesn't say, obey those in authority among you. So it means that their authority is not absolute. These people that say that, it's not worth having a conversation with them. They are a literal waste of time because it means that they don't know Arabic, if that's what they are saying. Because what is clear in this verse is that the wow al-atf is used. There are different types of wow in the Arabic language. There is wow al-qasam, for example. You say that I'm swearing by something where Allah says, وَالشَّمْسِ وَدُحَاهَا For example, I swear by the sun. Then you have wow al-hal, which means that something is happening while something else is happening another time and that is the wow that connects those two things. Or you have wow al-isti'nafi, which is something that starts a sentence, for example, an and that starts a sentence and it's not connected to anything before it. So there's different types of wow in the Arabic language, the letter wow. And in this ayah of the Quran, you can clearly see that the wow is wow al-atf. What that means is that it connects to that which came before it. So the same way that it says, rasula wa amri minkum. The same way that the Rasul has authority, then the Ulil Amr also have that same level of authority. This is what the ayah is saying. That is what Wa al means. It means that the authority of the Rasul is extended to the Ulil Amr and they hold and share that level of authority. It's like in English, if I say, for example, to you, I've got Mushtaba here, I say, Obey Mushtaba and Ahmad, right? That has made both of their obedience together. Nobody is going to say, Why didn't you say, Obey Mushtaba and Obey Ahmad? I, don't, I wouldn't need to say it again. I've used that and as a wow al-atf. I've connected those together and anybody would understand that this means that both of them need to be obeyed. And some people aren't convinced by that. They're saying, no, no, no. The wahi is used because it's trying to separate between the Rasul and the ulil amr. So then I will say, okay, let's go to another part of the Quran. In Surah Al-Imran in verse number 32, what does Allah say? Allah says, قُلْ أَطِيُوا اللَّهُ وَالرَّسُولُ Allah says, obey Allah and the messenger. He doesn't say, أَطِيُوا Rasul again. So what does that mean now? Does that mean that Rasulullah doesn't have complete authority? Is that what you're saying? You see this game that they play, it doesn't hold up, it's not consistent across the Quran. If you were to say here that أُولِي Amr, their authority is not the same as Rasulullah, then you have to then say that the Quran contradicts itself. Because here, Allah is saying, Allah wa Rasul. But in the other ayah, Allah is just saying, Allah wa Rasul. So, does that mean that Allah has now differentiated between the ta'a of Allah and the Rasul? Is that what you're saying? So that's why we have to be very clear when we're looking at the grammar of these ayat. And honestly, this is silly reasoning that shouldn't, it's not even deserve deserving of being responded to. But unfortunately, the ignorance has reached such a level that this also needs to be clarified. Now, someone would ask then, they would say, okay, that's fine. Let's agree that the Ulil Amr have the same level of authority as Rasulullah. How can you prove that the Ulil Amr are Ahlul Bayt? Okay, that's a great question. And to answer this question, I'm not going to bring to you external sources. I'm going to tell you to use your logic. Okay, I'm going to ask you, if Allah in the Quran has placed somebody on the same level of authority as Rasulullah, 
how great does that individual need to be? He needs to be amazing. He needs to be somebody that is on point, completely infallible, has no mistakes whatsoever because Rasulullah didn't have any mistakes whatsoever. So it has to be an infallible authority. That much is clear because wawal atf is used. So Rasulullah has to be the same level of perfection as the ulil amr. That is clear. So now, if we take a look at all of the tafsir of the Muslims, all of the tafsir of the Muslims, there are three options you have here. The first option is that you believe that these are the Imams of Ahlul Bayt and that's found in Shia tafsir. The second option you have is that you believe that these are the scholars, the scholars of Islam in general. These are the Ulil Amr. And the third option you have is the rulers. And this is the one that has become very, very popular these days. The idea that the rulers are ulil amri minkum. And this is what the uh, opposing sect like to push a lot. They like to say that these are ulil amr. These are the leaders of the Muslim world, right? So this is what they are pushing now. So let's take a look at those logically. Those are your three options out of all of the tafasir of the Muslims. Either you have the Imams of Ahlul Bayt salam, or you have the scholars, or you have the rulers. So if we take the example of scholars, for example, okay? First of all, how would you determine who is a scholar? Because that in itself is a subjective matter. Ulil Amri Minkum is referring, to, if it's referring to all of the scholars, then you would need to really be able to determine yourself for yourself that this person is a scholar and he reaches this level of understanding. Now, obviously, it's not going to be one scholar. It's mentioning Ulil Amr. So it's going to be a number of scholars. Now, those scholars have the potential to disagree. Every scholar will disagree with another scholar in something. So what does that mean now? That means that you don't know who to follow. And they're supposed to have the same level of authority as Rasulullah, who is very clear in what he says. Rasulullah, you go to him, he'll give you a clear answer. These scholars, you've got multiple of them and you don't know who to follow. So can they be on the same level of authority as Rasulullah if what is coming from them is not clear? Is that a possibility? And also, does a scholar have the complete authority to be able to tell you what is halal and what is haram? For example, if a scholar came to you one day and he said to you, you can drink alcohol, it's halal. What would you say to him? You would say, this guy's crazy. This guy's going against the Quran. He's going against the Sunnah. So you wouldn't believe him. You wouldn't follow him in that. You would say he's crazy. He's going against the Quran. He's going against the Sunnah. But on the other hand, Rasulullah has the authority to tell you what is halal and what is haram at any given time. So do they really have the same level of authority as Rasulullah? Does that logically make sense? Can it be that I've given this person the authority to just say anything to me? And he's a fallible individual who disagrees with other ulil amr, who are also scholars. And now I'm not sure what to follow. Can that really be the case? Can Allah make, give absolute authority to these scholars who disagree among themselves? Is that a logical possibility? And the third option of rulers is like after we've discussed scholars already being an impossibility, rulers is not even a discussion worth having. You're literally choosing then to say, who are ulil amr? Is it Gaddafi or is it Imam Ali alayhi salam? There's, there's no logical discussion to have there. So it is clear that the most logical opinion to hold here is that this is coming from an infallible source. Who are the Imams of Ahlul Bayt who the Prophet actually left behind for us in a mutawatir hadith that everybody accepts, everybody has it in their books. If we look at Sahih Muslim, we find it there. We find it in 
most of the Sahaba Sitta, we find even Albani authenticating a hadith where Rasulullah said, Inni tarikun fikum khalifatain kitab Allah wa itrati ahlubayti. He says, I have left behind for you two khalifas, two things that have are are in my successorship, the book of Allah and my Ahlul Bayt This is an authentic hadith according to Albani. Yeah, so this is an accepted hadith across all of the schools of Islam that Rasulullah left behind for us the Quran and the Ahlul Bayt. Even that, even the pairing of Faqalain, the idea that the Ahlul Bayt are, are paired with the Quran, is it that you believe that the Quran has errors such that the Ahlul Bayt would have errors? No, they are both infallible. They are both things that have to be things that are completely perfect for Rasulullah to leave them behind for us and for him to say The idea that you will never ever go astray as long as you hold on to these two things they have to be infallible sources of your religion and that is what is represented in this ayah of the Quran where Allah says and those in authority among you, the same level of authority as Rasulullah, as we have explained grammatically. Some people, what they like to say is the part of the verse that says, فَإِن تَنَازَعْتُمْ فِي شَيْءٍ فَرَدُّوهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَالرَّسُولِ It says that if you are to defer amongst yourself in a certain matter, then re return it back to Allah and the Rasul. So they say, look, it doesn't mention the Ulil Amr here, so that's what shows that they don't have complete authority. That is also incorrect. The reason why the Quran does that is because that the original sources of the religion, those who brought the religion, were Allah and the Rasul. So the Ulil Amr are those who explain and they preserve that religion. So therefore, in order for you to understand what Allah and the Rasul say, how do you refer to Allah and the Rasul? You have to go to the Ulil Amr, those who understand Allah and the Rasul the best. Those who are preserving of his religion. The same way that we explained in Hadith Taqalain. This ayah of the Quran is a muhkam, clear, clear verse. There is no arguing around it. This is a very clear verse and a logical verse that can only applied to Al-Bayt It cannot apply to the scholars, nor can it apply to the rulers logically. How can people who disagree amongst themselves be an infallible authority that you must follow? Who are you going to follow out of them if they're disagreeing? So this is clear that it is about Al-Bayt And this is a muhkam ayah that the Shia present with regards to Imam in the Quran. And then we turn to another ayah of the Quran, speaking about the authority of the Imams Alayhi salam. We have an ayah in Surah Al-Ma'idah, ayah number 55. Allah says in the Quran, it's a famous ayah. Allah says, إِنَّمَا وَلِيُكُمُ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا الَّذِينَ يُقِيمُونَ الصَّلَاةُ وَيُؤْتُونَ الزَّكَاةُ وَهُمْ رَاكِعُونَ Allah says, indeed your guardians are only Allah and the Rasul and those who believe, those who uphold the prayer and they give zakat while they are in the state of Rukuk. So this ayah of the Quran, it's put the guardianship, the wilaya of Allah Rasul and this individual who gives zakat in his ruku' on the same level of wilaya, wilayat and wahida, one wilaya, Allah, the Rasul, and this third individual. And this is another ayah where we see the wa al atf again. You see, we see waliyukumullah wa rasuluhu amanu. So that level of wilaya is on the same level. The wa al atf is used. Some ask and they say, why does the ayah say those who believe? which is such a generic statement. How can you say this applies to Ali ibn Abi Talib? The answer to that is the ayah starts with innama. Innama in Arabic, it represents hasr. It means that it has restricted it. It's restricted the ayah. 
the ayah cannot start restricting itself and then become general halfway through the ayah. That would be against the eloquence of the Quran. So it cannot be that Allah is speaking about Allah and the Rasul and then he just makes it general with regards to the mu'mineen and those who believe. If for example I say, Inna Muhammad fil bayt, Indeed, Muhammad is in the house. That statement doesn't restrict who else can be in the house. If I say, Inna Muhammad fil bayt, Anyone else can also be in the house. But if I say, Inna ma Muhammad fil bayt, That means only Muhammad is in that house. So I can't say that only Muhammad is in that house and those who believe, for example. Like, that doesn't even make sense. What's the point of me using only if I'm going to make such a generic statement after and include millions of people? So it's clear here that this ayah is speaking about a specific individual. And if we look to see who was this verse revealed with regards to. And again, we're going to take the logical angle. We're going to look into the tafsir of all of the Muslims. And we're going to see who can this verse have been revealed about. And even if we look into the tafsir of the Ahl Sunnah, if we take the example, for example, of Tafsir Dur al-Manthur by As-Suyuti, he mentions that this ayah was revealed with regards to Ali bin Abi Talib. Even if they disagree with the chain of the narration and they say this is a weak hadith and this is a problematic hadith and this is, you know, an uh, invention of the Shia or whatever they say. This is a narration that exists in the end in the books of the Sunnis. Yeah. So we take a logical principle. We say, who can this ayah be about? Can it be that everybody was giving zakat in rukuk? That's not possible. If we say here as well, look, they say, look, that this is just generally speaking about the believers who pray and they give zakat. Why does Allah then say, وَهُمْ He's mentioned the salat anyway. The rukuk is part of the salat. So it's clear that this wow is what? Is wow al-hal. It means that while he is praying, that while in the state of prayer, while in the state of ruku', they give zakat. And there's the famous story of Ali bin Abi Talib where he gives his ring as sadaqah while he is in ruku'. And this is narrated on both sides. On, in both sects books, you can find this narration. So we can see here that the logical principle would be what? To go with the only possibility you have. Otherwise, you say, you have to do mental gymnastics. You have to say, look, it's speaking about all of the believers. And then you have to answer, why does it say inama? Then you have to say, no, look, it's just speaking about standard prayer. Then why does it say wahum raki'un? Why is it mentioning ruku', which is a part of prayer? It doesn't make any sense if you take any other angle other than this has been revealed with regards to a specific individual. And it is revealed to show that his wilayah is on the same level as Allah and as the Rasul. And it is none other than Ali ibn Abi Talib Then we see with regards to the characteristics that Allah ascribes to those who he has given the position of Imama. Allah says in the 73rd verse of Surah Al-Anbiya, after the Basmala, he says, And we made them Imams that guide by our order. He says, and we sent down upon them revelation of doing good things, good matters, and praying the prayer, and giving the charity. And they are those who are 
worshippers of ours. Worshippers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah has ascribed to them this quality that they guide by His order. They are divinely appointed. Yeah, again, you can see again that Allah is the one that gives them the orders of that which they guide with. So we see this very clearly in the Quran. This is the authority of the Imams in the Quran. And the position of Imama that Allah is the one that gives. Again, he uses the same word. وَجَعَلْنَاهُمْ إِنِّي جَائِلٌ فِي الْأَرْضِ خَلِيفَةً إِنِّي جَائِلُكَ لِلنَّاسِ إِمَامًا It is Allah that does it. وَجَعَلْنَاهُمْ أَئِمَّةً يَحْدُونَ بِأَمْرِنَا That is by our order that they guide the people. And this is Allah's will and Allah's will is infallible. Allah will not communicate to you through people who are not infallible. And this is the final verse that I want to end on. And this is the proof of the wilaya of Ali ibn Abi Talib being not only from the Usul al-Din, but being Aslul Usul. It is the most important Asl from the Usul al-Din. Where Allah says in the Quran, in ayah number 67 of Surah Al-Ma'idah, after the Basbal, Allah says, Ya ayyuhal rasoolu, ballig ma unzila ilayka min rabbik, wa in lam taf'al, fama ballaghta risalata. Wallahu ya'asimuka min al-nas, inna allaha la yahdil qawm al-kafirin. Allah says, O oh my messenger, proclaim that which has been revealed to you from your Lord. And if you do not, then it is as if you haven't delivered the message altogether. Think about the depth of that statement. What is this ayah speaking about? As a Muslim reading the ayah, are you not curious to know what is this ayah speaking about? Which is so important that if Rasulullah doesn't deliver that message, then it is as if he hasn't delivered the message altogether. This is a Madani surah. This is one of the last ayat that came down upon Rasulullah. This is where Tawheed, has been established the belief with regards to Qadr, with regards to Jannah, with regards to Jahannam, with regards to the angels, with regards to the books that came before, with regards to the Salat, with regards to Psalm, with regards to everything in the religion has already come. What is so important that all of that would mean nothing, would mean zero. If Rasulullah doesn't proclaim that message. Ask yourself that question. What was this ayah revealed about? Let's take this as another example of logical principles. What could this be speaking about? Some people, they like to take the context that are around the ayats that are around it. And they say, look, this is speaking about the Torah and the Injil and the idea that we affirm them as Muslims. Is that that important? Is it that important that Rasulullah says that, that if he doesn't say that, then it is as if he hasn't conveyed the religion whatsoever? Is that really the case? The Torah and the Injil in the belief of Islam are distorted books, even at the time of Rasulullah. So what is it about them that makes it so important that Rasulullah has to say this thing to the people of Al-Kitab? Otherwise, it's as if he hasn't conveyed the religion whatsoever. Can that be the context of what this ayah is speaking about? Or we take the example of that which is mentioned in the Tafasir. Even if we look into books of tafsir that are Sunni again, yeah, the tafsir Dur al-Manthur, what does it mention? It mentions that some of the companions, they used to read this ayah in this way. They used to read it as, Ya ayyuhal rasoolu, ballagh ma unzila ilayka min rabbika fi aliyan. They used to read it as, O messenger, 
proclaim that which has been revealed to you from your Lord with regards to Ali bin Abi Talib. That is present even in the books of the opposing sect, those who oppose the religion of Tashayyu. You'll be able to find that narration clearly in Tafsir Dur al-Mantur by As-Suyuti. So this is a, a hadith that's also found in the books of Ahl al-Sunnah in other places as well. But Tafsir Dur al-Mantur is one of the most famous tafasir, so that's why I'm quoting it as the source. So you can see here clearly that from a muhkam verse perspective, yeah, if we take that definition that uh, Al-Tabari mentioned, that this is something that the scholars know it's ta'wil. We know it's ta'wil because we've seen that hadith that mentioned that this was with regards to Ali bin Abi Talib in both books of both sects, in the Sunni books and in the Shia books. We see that it's mentioned with regards to Ali bin Abi Talib. So logically, if you think and you weigh it up, you say, okay, Ahlul Kitab and the Wilayah of Ali bin Abi Talib, the Shia are making a really big deal out of the Wilayah of Ali bin Abi Talib. Maybe it is because it is a big deal. Maybe it's because the Quran mentions it as Asrul Usul. The Quran is mentioning it as Asrul Usul here. Allah is saying here that this is the most important principle of all the principles of everything that has ever come in the religion. That's how Allah is speaking about wilayah in the Quran here, about imamah in the Quran here. And these are all muhkam verses that we've been through. We've seen the position of imamah in the Quran mentioned as an explicit station and a rank that was given to Ibrahim. We see that Allah puts his representative on earth and he keeps that sunnah until the end of creation. Allah says, that you will never find that Allah changes his course of action. The sunnah of Allah remains the same. A representative of Allah always needs to be on the earth as per the ayat of the Quran. Then we saw the authority of the Imams in that they have the same level of authority as Rasulullah. Then we see the wilaya that is on one level with Allah, Rasul and Imam Ali والسلام, and by extension the rest of the Imams والسلام, we see that the wilaya is very clear and then we see even clearer than that the ayat that show that this is not only something that you should believe in in your usul al-deen but this is the most important asl of them all in that if Rasulullah did not proclaim this then it is as if he had not proclaimed the religion or conveyed the message altogether. We've discussed these verses just using the verses, the Arabic grammar of the verses. We've presented it in such a way that inshallah that's something that you can take away and you can think about if you are trying to find out about imamah in the Quran. These are such clear verses that in the way that we have discussed them today, it should be very clear to anybody that watches this that imamah is present in the Quran in many places and discussed from many different angles. It is only those who want to be blind to the Quran completely. You see that we see this in Surah Al Imran. We see that فَأَمَّا الَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ زَيْغٌ فَيَتَّبِعُونَ مَا تَشَابَهَ مِنْهُ إِبْتِغَاءَ الْفِتْنَةِ وَابْتِغَاءَ تَعْوِيلِهِ That Allah says in the Quran, in Surah Al Imran, in verse number seven after the Basmala, that there are those. As for those who have diseases in their hearts, then they follow that which is unclear from the Quran, trying to cause discord and trying to cause confusion and in, in journey of looking for its ta'wil, of its true interpretation. Those are the people that are blind to Imam in the Quran, even though it is mentioned in all of these clear muhkam verses, the concept of Imam 
and the wilaya of Amir Mumineen is something that is in your face in the Quran. That is such a great statement, a grand statement. If you do not deliver this thing, it is as if you have not conveyed the message whatsoever. And is not speaking to Rasulullah in that way, of course. This is to show us that, look, this is such an important thing that I'm about to tell Rasulullah. Allah is making it jump out at you in your face in the Quran. And if some people still don't want to accept it and they want to be blind to these facts in the Quran, then let them be blind. This is why it annoys me when we see people in speaker's corner. People like Shamsi, he uses these words so often. He says, logic dictates. And he will go ahead and he will quote the most illogical thing that you've ever heard. Where are your logical principles when you're reading the Quran? When you see these ayat with regards to ulil amr, yeah? I mentioned to you with regards to the grammatical point there, with regards to it making the authority the same as Rasulullah. What does Shamsi say in Speaker's Corner? My wali al-amr is who? Is Tabun, the president of Algeria. Really? Is this the level of Islam that you're at? And it's a great thing that nowadays Shamsi has exposed himself. Shamsi, when he spoke against Palestine, when he spoke against the people of Palestine, when he couldn't even give up Starbucks, yeah, when he started saying things like the earth revolves around the sun, people could actually see, you know what, actually this guy isn't as smart as we thought. And that's so unfortunate because generally speaking, Muslims, we are very, very behind in learning about our religion. We don't gain knowledge with regards to our religion. So these fools can come into speaker's corner and they can say anything and they can shout over people and you will think that this person, oh, mashallah, he's so knowledgeable. He, he's quoting the Quran, he's quoting the Hadith, he must know what he's talking about. But it is because you have not been able to study your religion that you're not able to, to spot the fakes. Those people that are there in Speaker's Corner to put on a show, they come with 50 supporters and they'll surround two or three Shia and they'll like, you know, they'll make a show, they won't let you speak. If you'll see as well, when Shamsi gets pressured, yeah, when he feels like he's losing a point, He'll change the topic. They want people that are on their own, that are not wild. You'll see that the people who deal with Shamsi in the same way that he deals with other people, Shamsi won't speak to them. Shamsi will only speak to an individual who is quiet, right? Someone who's calm, because that gives him the ability to be able to speak over them, change the subject whenever he wants. And you'll see him do that in so many debates with, with, with Shia. And unfortunately, because people are not well-read in their religion, they can't tell who is telling the truth and who is on the upper hand in that debate. It's only now that people are seeing the stupidity that these people have in other aspects with regards to Palestine. You can't even give up Starbucks. You can't even give up Starbucks. Even the average Muslim, the, the, the non-religious Muslim, those who don't even pray, they don't even fast, even they are going out of their way to boycott Starbucks. They are the people that are there to speak for the Palestinian people. Even they have more ghira for Islam and Muslims than you. And you claim to be a person of Sunnah. This is what has exposed them. And now that people are able to see that he's stupid in these aspects of life in general, hopefully they'll be able to see that his religious opinions are just as fallacious and silly as his opinions outside talking about the earth revolves around the sun. We don't need to listen to the scientists. Our ulama said that, bruv, your ulama grew up in the desert. They, don't, they didn't even go to school. And they're telling you that the earth revolves around the sun and you don't believe it. You have 
literally, I, like, I'm just trying to understand, like, if the earth revolves around the sun, then what about the moon? Like, you have to consider what you're saying. Like, when you say these things and they sound that stupid, like, you have to really consider what you're saying. Think about it. Like, what about the other planets then? Do we, like, do they all revolve around the earth? Like, are, are you serious? And that's why it's people like him that ask these stupid questions like where is Imamah in the Quran? It's only them. You'll see even the scholars of the Wahhabiya will not ask these questions. They won't ask where is Imamah in the Quran because they're more smart than that. It's only the silly people at the bottom that ask questions like this. If you look at, for example, a respected scholar of the Salafi movement, people like Hatim Auni, right? You will never find him asking stupid questions like that because they, they know what their principles are. And most of the arguments that people like Shamsi, they present, they're actually very weak arguments. It's just the style of debate, the art of debate, the act of being able to speak over somebody, being able to make the crowd laugh, put on a show, put on a performance that makes it look like he's such a great debater. But in reality, if Shamsi was ever invited to a debate where he was told, five minutes you, five minutes me, and Shamsi had to be quiet for five minutes, you would see how weak his arguments are. You would see how little understanding he has of the Quran and Sunnah. So that's a big problem that we are facing as Muslims in general in the West. And more specifically as well as Shia, we all need to make sure that we equip ourselves with the resources of religion, of being able to understand the Quran and Sunnah at least at a basic level for ourselves so that we're not taken away by these waves of people that are just putting on shows. And that's what unfortunately YouTube has become. It's become people just putting on a show. If we look at Jum'ah Nights, every episode we have discussed every matter that we have gone through with the Quran, with the Sunnah, in a way that is academic hopefully and in a way that is easy to understand and in a basic simple way so that everybody is able to follow the discussion. This is an attempt for me to at least be able to share my journey with you, at least be able to share my thoughts or that which I have found from the scholars with regards to what they have said with regards to the Quran and the Hadith and just being able to share that because a lot of us we're missing even the basic tools of how to research and that is the most important thing and that's what we try to provide you on Jum'ah nights. So I hope that's been a beneficial episode to you. I hope that's been clear with regards to where is Imam in the Quran and that all of your questions are answered. Inshallah, I'll see you next week where we'll be starting our new series with regards to death and barzakh and we'll be going into depth with three episodes on that very topic. I'll see you again for that next week. Assalamu alaikum. ورحمة الله وبركاته